Let's pray. God, we do ask that, uh, that you would be honored by the attention that we give to your word tonight. <clears throat> we pray that you would speak to us through it. And Lord, we want to not be indifferent to what you would say to us. You wrote it down for a reason and a purpose, and we want to draw closer to you through it. And so we pray that, uh, that you just touch our hearts tonight, God that we would be sensitive to the prompting of your Holy Spirit and that you would truly uh, speak truth into our hearts through your word. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. So, Revelation, as we're working our way through it, we've talked about, uh, and we'll probably continue to talk about it every, every week until we get through it, but the, the critical thing you have to understand about the book of Revelation is this. That's Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And it's the fact that it's the revelation singular of Jesus Christ. This is not a book of revelations. This is not a book about the Antichrist or the mark of the beast or what 666 means or who the two prophets are and why fire is coming out of their mouths and, and what the seven seals mean and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. This is not what that book is about. All those things are in there, but they are all secondary. The book is about Jesus Christ revealing himself to the world. And if you understand that, then the book becomes vastly simpler. And people are scared of this book sometimes, I think, because it just feels so complicated. And there's so many things, and, and who is Babylon, and who's the woman, and who's the dragon, and all these. And you know what the answer is? The answer is, rewind. The book is about Jesus Christ revealing himself and making himself known to the entire world. Okay, so first of all, we have to understand that. Second of all, we have to understand that we're given an outline of the book where Jesus tells John to write the things which he has seen. That's chapter 1. The things which are, that's chapters 2 and 3, where he's addressing sort of the age of the church and then the things that will be. And that's specifically the period of the Great Tribulation and the period of the Millennial Kingdom and then the new heavens and the new earth. That's really the rest of the book. That's where we're at tonight. Okay? But to set the stage for where we come into it in chapter 6, we've got to back up chapters 4 and 5. And in chapters 4 and 5, we learn about the rapture of the church in chapter 4, verse 1. And then John is writing from the vantage point of heaven. And from heaven, he sees primarily, first and foremost, above all else, the presence of God. And that's what heaven is about. It is not about us being happy. It's not about, you know, whatever your stupid metaphor is that you've heard somebody describe about heaven. Heaven is about the presence of God and being there in the presence. And in that presence, it is possible to rejoice over and over again for all eternity without growing bored, without getting old, without ever running out of praise for the Lord because that presence is so comprehensive and so full and so pure and so holy. And that's where John starts us out. It's a vision of heaven. And then he goes from there and he's explaining about the creatures that he's seeing worshiping the Lord. And then he goes on in chapter 5 and we, we read about a scroll. And the idea, especially in an ancient culture and in an Eastern culture, is that before, before you had books, before the printing press, documents were written up in a scroll and they were sealed. And so that you could basically it'd be a, a tamper evidence seal. If someone broke the seal to read the document or to take ownership of the document, you'd be able to tell. And only a person who was authorized to open that document could break the seal. And so the question is, who's worthy to take this scroll? And the scroll is, as it's unpacked here, in essence, the title deed to earth. 
The scroll is, who has, the, who has the right to redeem the earth? Because in Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world. And when sin enters the world, the ownership of earth, in essence, transfers from Adam, or the stewardship of earth transfers from Adam, and Satan takes it over. And it's, it's his domain. And he's actually, depending on, he's, tra- he's called the ruler of this earth. Some Bible translations actually call him the God of this world. Uh, lowercase g. But he has a dominion over this earth. And the question is, who has the right to redeem this property, in effect? Okay? Who has the right to take it back? And, and John says, nobody. Nobody had the right. Nobody in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Nobody through all of history has had except for one. And that's Jesus Christ. And basically, what we're going to see tonight as we start into it is Jesus is going to start basically, he's going to take the scroll and say, this is my right to reclaim the earth. It is my time. It is my right. This is what I'm here for. And he's going to start taking ownership of the earth back out of the hands of Satan. Okay, and so John is watching this. He's having a vision where basically there's a scroll. It has seven seals on it. And basically you break a seal, open it up a little more, break a seal, open it up, break a seal, open it up, break a seal. And and each seal is going to basically just be a, a, a shift in the ownership. Okay, and so it's going to create massive spiritual conflicts and create massive tension massive problems around the world but it's the judgment of god but we talked about this last week and it's really important that when when john says when the angel tells john hey someone's been found worthy who what's he call him the lion the lion is worthy to take the scroll and john looks and he sees who a lamb take the scroll because jesus is the lion and the lamb but when jesus steps forth to judge the earth He's going to judge the earth as a lamb. And what we're going to read tonight, tonight is, is honestly not a particularly pleasant passage of scripture. Okay, tonight is, is frankly rather heavy. But it's also massively comforting because we're going to watch God be in complete self-control. God will never at any point in the book of Revelation lose his cool. He will never at any point lose his temper. He is completely in control. And this is where... We need to understand this, that judgment is not a bad thing. Vengeance is not a bad thing. Vengeance is only bad when human beings take it upon themselves. The Lord says, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is a real thing that's actually good when it's justly administered. And God says, I'm the only one who is capable of doing this justly. And so what we're going to see tonight is the Lord justly administering the discipline that needs to happen. Okay, and we're going to see within that, there's going to be massive opportunities for people to repent over and over and over again. But the Lord will be taking the earth back and saying, okay, here's what I'm doing. I am dealing with the sins of the world. So chapter 6, he's going to see Jesus Christ start to open up the scroll. Verse 1, now, when I, now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So the first mark, the first seal, as it's broken, is the rise of a world leader. And it's important, I guess, I meant to say a second ago, but what we're reading tonight is a prophecy. And when we go into the scriptures, we want to understand that whenever we look at a prophecy, it's been fulfilled. In the vast majority of instances, it's been fulfilled very, very literally. And so, 
we look forward and we say, you know what, it hasn't been fulfilled yet. I don't technically know exactly how this will be fulfilled, but based on the pattern that God has demonstrated in the past, the safest assumption when you're reading prophecy is to try and take it as literally as possible. And if you come to a spot where you say, I just don't know how God could do that literally, then perhaps give some credit to the Lord that he might have ideas that you don't have. Okay? But the first seal breaks and we see the rise of a leader. Now, he's on a white horse, but this is not Jesus. Jesus is going to come at the end of the Great Tribulation and it's going to be very obvious who he is. He's going to have a crown. He's going to have a sword. He's going to have King of Kings and Lord of Lords written on him. It will be no confusion about who Jesus Christ is when he comes. But this leader is going to come to power as an imposter. He's also on a white horse. He's going to go out conquering and to conquer. The, the mark of the beginning of what we know as the Great Tribulation, the beginning of the, the judgment of God poured out on the earth, is going to be the rise of a world leader who's going to try to step into the place of Jesus Christ. And some people make a lot of the fact that he has a bow. He doesn't have any arrows. And so some people say, hey, maybe that means he'll, you know, sort of he'll take power without warfare. We'll see in a second that war is going to, he'll keep power by warfare, but maybe he rises to power through political means. Some people say bow could actually be rainbow in the sense of where God in the book of Genesis gave a rainbow as a sign of a covenant to Noah, and maybe it'll be that he'll just come in peace and... If you're going to say, well, maybe that, then you could also say, well, maybe he comes in the sign of the rainbow flag as, as part of the, the gay agenda. And truthfully, all of that is speculation. All of it could be literal. All of it could be, uh, all that could be there. But what we know for sure is a world leader is going to rise to power as the, uh, as the mark of the beginning of the Great Tribulation. Verse 3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. So, the second, the second wave of judgment is warfare on the earth. And it's interesting, you're going to have a, a world leader under the guise of peace, rise to power, he's going to bring world peace, he's going to finally answer all of our problems, and what's going to be the result? Massive warfare. You know, we... we we think of ourselves, especially if you have an evolutionary worldview, as being constantly progressing. But Scripture teaches us that the human heart is basically evil, basically sinful, which means we're actually constantly regressing. We are becoming worse. And you can just look at history and realize we don't kill people less frequently now. We kill people more efficiently now. The last century was basically the systemized killing of humanity across the globe. We fought World War I, and it was so massive that people called it the Great War because it was like the big one. It was, it was the war to end all wars. That's what they called it. And it ended all wars for less than 20 years. And then we fought another war that was so much worse than that that most people today really have a hard time telling you much about World War I because World War II was so significant. And since then, we really haven't ever stopped. We're still, you have genocides all over the world. You had Soviet Russia wiping out millions of its own people. You had just chaos around the world. And we still pretend that we're somehow more civilized than we used to be. But the Antichrist will rise to power. This world leader will come to power under the guise of, of a peaceful reign and just bringing us all together. And then what will happen? War will break out. People will rebel against him and he will try to rule with an iron fist. 
Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold, a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. So this doesn't make any sense if you don't know what a denarius is. And I'll just assume you all know what a quart is. So um, a denarius is basically a day's wages for the average working man. So what this seal means is there's going to be massive widespread famine on the earth. Think about a quart of, quart of wheat, so what, four cups of flour? Okay, that's enough. You know, you could, you could make a meal. You could make a, a meal, a day's worth of food for a guy out of four cups of flour. One day's wage for one day's worth of food. So imagine, if you will, a world in which a sandwich costs about $200. Or imagine a world in which you work for somebody for a full day and they say, okay, I'll give you enough food to keep you alive till tomorrow. There's going to be massive famine all around the world, but he says, don't harm the oil and the wine. There's going to be a wealth disparity between who's suffering and who's not. Oil and wine are traditionally in scripture the foods of luxury, the foods of rich people. Rich people will be able to, they'll be, they'll be sitting high. Power will be consolidating, the rich will be doing just fine. And they'll talk about making the rich pay their fair share, probably. But they'll be doing just fine, but the world will be starving. And we're seeing just layers. We talked about this last week. Most of the judgments of God are never God really handing it out harshly as much as they are God just stepping back his protection. You know, when, when the C.S. Lewis said, at the, end of, at the end of time, basically, there's only two kinds of people. There's people who say to the Lord, hey, your will be done. And there's people who the Lord says, fine, your will be done. And so really the world has just told the Lord, we, we have no desire for you. We have no need for you. We don't think you exist. And the Lord is just walking it back just a little bit at a time. I, I was taking care of you here. I can step that back. I was taking care of you here. I can step that back. And so we're going to see the rise of the Antichrist. And then there'll be massive warfare and then massive famine. And then verse 7 when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. 25% of the world's population is going to get killed. Between the wars, the famines, hunger, death, and by the beast of the earth. Now, that could, some people... Look at that and say it's probably like that could be mosquito-borne illnesses that arise. Some people look at that and say, you know what? The Lord has put a fear of humanity into the animals of the earth. And you know, people always say, what, the, what? They're more scared of you than you are of them. What if the Lord removes that protection? What if all of a sudden the animals of the earth are less scared of you than you are of them? And so a fourth of the earth is going to be killed in this period. And then verse 9, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Now this... It's interesting, and we'll see this throughout the book of Revelation. You get these, like, 
massive judgments, and then there's these pauses where the Lord just says, hey, remember this? I'm, I'm still in control. The fifth seal of judgment John sees is a wave of martyrs. And understand what that means. That means two things. It means Christians are getting killed. But it also means there's a lot of Christians. Now, we talked about last week that I believe very passionately in a, what's called a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, where the Lord removes the church before he deals out judgment on the earth. That's a very consistent pattern throughout Scripture. I think it's very consistent with the teaching on the end times that Paul talks about in Thessalonians and elsewhere. But think about all the people around the earth who have ignored Christianity, who have blown it off, who deep down know it's true, but they just have no interest in surrendering to the Lord. If every Christian on earth suddenly disappears, there's going to be a lot of people who have to do a very hard reckoning and say, wait a second, I knew that guy was crazy, but maybe he was telling the truth. And so we're going to see, we'll be watching from the vantage point of heaven, but there will be a massive amount of souls saved on the earth during the Great Tribulation. And that's not an excuse, you know, some people, that's not an excuse to delay walking with the Lord, because it will be awful. There will be nothing pleasant in any form whatsoever about the Great Tribulation. And so if you are undecided about where you stand with the Lord, you better decide. You better decide. This is not, you know, I don't believe in scaring people, but you know what, sometimes the scripture warns us very seriously. If you're not sure, decide. Because you don't want to wake up someday and realize, oh, I missed it. And now I'm either going to endure seven years of the judgment of God or I'm going to get killed for what I believe. You don't want to do that, and you don't have to do that. Scripture says God has not appointed us to wrath. No one has to go to the great tribulation. But there are people who will choose by their actions now to put themselves in a position where they will have to go through it. But there's still, there's still the power of the gospel in the midst of the great tribulation. People are still turning to Jesus Christ in the midst of this. And then verse 12 I looked when he opened the sixth seal. And behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. The moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks and the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So there are massive cosmic disturbances. There's volcanoes going off. There's comets or asteroids hitting the earth. There's all kinds of awful things happening. And it says that the people of the earth are going to hide in the caves and in the rocks and the mountains. If we're trying to interpret Scripture as literally as possible, sounds an awful lot like bunkers. Right? And the rich guys will probably hide in their bunkers and they will hope that the mountain just kind of covers over the bunker so that nobody can find them and they've got their however many years supply of food and they'll just be good. But notice, they're asking the rocks and the mountains to fall and cover them. They're saying, hide us from the wrath of God. They're not saying, God, forgive us. And we'll see this contrast back and forth throughout Revelation. There are people who surrender to the Lord and there are people who say, No. And what the Great Tribulation is going to do is it's going to clarify the entire world. 
Okay, right now there are a lot of people who, you know, they believe in God or the man upstairs or they kind of, you know, yeah, they'll get around to it or, you know, their, their parents are Christians and it's, you know, it's not super their thing, but they're like, they're chill with it. By the end of the Great Tribulation, there will only be two kinds of people on earth. People who say, I will follow Christ no matter what. And people who say, I will not follow Christ no matter what. The Great Tribulation is going to be polarizing. And you think about when Jesus told the parable of the tares and the wheat, and he talked about when, you know, you can look at a field that might have wheat and it might have stalks of grass that look just like wheat but have no fruit. And you don't know, really, until it's time for the fruit to come on, which one is which. And he says, at the end of the age, I'm going to harvest it all and I will sort it out. And the Lord is going to sort out the earth into two groups of people, those who trust Christ and those who don't. Verse 7, or chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Think about that for a second. The Lord, the angels are going to hold back the wind. There will be no wind during the Great Tribulation, at least at this point. Think about what that does for the quality of the air. Think about what that does just for the atmosphere in general, when there is no wind, when everything is stale. The Lord is just, you know, there are all these things that people say, what should I be thankful to God for? Well, have you ever considered that you should be thankful to God for fresh air? It's, it's saying that it's, it's so consistent in our world because of the trade winds that God has put in place that we just don't think about it. But all of a sudden, there's going to be a realization, oh, God's in control of the wind too. Then I saw another angel, verse 2, another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. So these angels are holding back the wind. And angels, and there's a couple of passages in Revelation where angel could be interpreted as either a good angel or a bad angel. They're handing out the judgment of God either way. But um, before these ones, these would appear to be demonic angels. But before they're allowed to, to really let loose, they're told, hey, you can't harm anything until we seal the servants of God. And the Lord seals 144,000 Jewish people. There's actually clarification. We'll get there either next week or the week after. These are 144,000 male Jewish evangelists, single men. And if you interpret Scripture as literally as possible, I believe that there's 144,000 Jewish evangelists who are going to come to Christ during the Great Tribulation and then be used by the Lord to spread the gospel all over the earth. Now, Notice, though, this is important. Over and over again, we've got to see this in the book of Revelation. They say, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of God on, our forehead, on their foreheads. The Lord says, okay, I'm going to let you 
I'm going to let you loose on the earth, but you are not going to do it until I say so. And you will not harm the ones who I seal. And it's, it's just important to remember that God never loses his self-control in judgment. Everything we read here, okay, is completely measured and completely perfect in its justice. And so we look and we say, wow, this is heavy. Wow, this feels harsh. God understands the condition of the human heart perfectly, the condition of every human heart perfectly. He understands the condition of nations and the condition of leaders. And so he is not going to make a mistake. He can say, you know what, there's 144,000 Jewish men who I'm going to appoint as evangelists. And I'm actually going to appoint 12,000 from each one of these tribes. If you're, a, if you're a Old Testament buff, you may notice that the tribe of Dan is not in there. If you want to know why, I don't know. But there's 12,000 from 12 of the tribes. And so the Lord is in control. The Lord is not losing rain on the earth as bad things are happening. It's not slipping out of his grasp. It is perfectly within his control. And he is utilizing every step of judgment to draw people to himself. In verse 9, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number. How many people is that? That's probably a lot, if nobody could count it. Of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. John sees a massive multitude of people worshiping the Lord. And then verse 13, one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. Which is code, right? For, sir, I don't have a clue, but I really don't want to look stupid right now, so I'll just kind of flip the question back on you. What do you think? So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat for the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne, will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So the, angel, the elder says, who are these? And John says, um, why don't you tell me? And he said, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. The number of people who will be saved during the great tribulation John says, is a multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. We look at the book of Revelation, and if we're not careful, we think, wow, there's a lot of judgment here. But notice what just happened. What is a massive multitude of people? I mean, like, like, what he's describing, what is that, a billion people? I don't know. I don't know how big the number it is, but John evidently thinks it's pretty impressive. And John gives us some big numbers in the book of Revelation. We'll read about a demonic army of 200 million. So John can at least get that high. And he says, nobody could count this. So, this is a lot of people who are going to come out of the Great Tribulation believing in Jesus Christ. Nobody is going to, everyone is given the perfect number of opportunities 
to receive the gospel. There's nobody who dies apart from God, and the Lord says, oh, yeah, it should have ah, man, they were, they were one short, and they died too early. Nobody. Everybody, every heart is, the Lord knows the condition of every heart to know how many chances every person needs. And he also knows the condition of every heart well enough to know there are some people who the number of chances will not change their mind. And so we don't look, you know, when someone dies young or dies old, we don't say, wow, they, it was cut so short. No, it was the perfect number because the Lord never loses control. The Lord has not lost his self-control here. And what we see here is a multitude of people who, yes, have to endure immense persecution and immense tribulation because they refused to accept the Lord earlier in their lives. But they still, they still get to come into the presence of God where John is and where the saints are, where the church is, right? Jesus told a parable about a man who went out to hire men to work in his vineyard. And he went out at the beginning of the day and said, hey, I'll pay you this much. And then he went out in the middle of the day and said, hey, I'll pay you guys this much. You know, I'll, I'll pay you what's fair. And at the end of the day, there was just a couple hours of daylight left. He said, hey, go work. I'll pay you what's fair. And at the end of the day, he paid them all the same amount. And the people who had worked all day were mad, but they had received a just wage. They were just mad that they felt like they were entitled to a little more. And Jesus says, look, I can give my gifts to who I want. If I'm God... I can bestow my gifts on who I want. You can say, you know, the people who come out of the Great Tribulation and accept the Lord are going to receive all the gifts that God offers us. They are going to be our brothers and sisters in Christ for heaven, in heaven forever. They will receive the full inheritance of the gospel. Now, again, that is no reason to put off walking with the Lord. Because the Great Tribulation will be awful, but we need to understand just always, always, the justice of God and the grace of God are always connected. They are never separate from each other. So chapter 8, he goes on. And he says, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And what we'll see in the book of Revelation, there's a pattern of, how the judgment of God works. And that is that there are seven seals. And the seventh seal opens up another wave of tribulation. And those are seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet will open up another wave of tribulation. That's seven bowls where judgment is like poured out on the earth. Okay? And each time they increase in, in strength and in devastation. And the Lord is just consistently just pushing people. Hey, you have a chance. Take it. You have an opportunity. Take it. But this is getting worse, and life is getting very real. Okay? The Lord is, this is not a fun time on earth. The Lord is still working, but this is not a good time on the earth. Verse 3, then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. 
third of all the forests in the earth are going to be gone. And all the plains will be gone. Which probably includes a massive percentage of cropland. Incidentally, just sometimes you, know, you read these and just pause and consider the ripple effect. What does that mean? Well, if all the grass dies, what happens next? All the beef dies. Right? All livestock is going to start dying off. Which, incidentally, where does that leave? Just from a straight-up practical standpoint. Okay, let's say humanity needs protein to survive. Where are you going to get it? Fish and insects. That's basically what your options are at this point. Verse 8. Then a second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So fish just kind of went out of the picture. And notice also, so a great mountain burning with fire kind of sounds like an asteroid or a comet. Not totally sure, but for interpreting scriptures literally as possible, I think when it comes, it'll look like a great mountain burning with fire. Gets thrown into the sea. A third of the ships are destroyed. The Lord is going to destroy the commercialism of the earth that prioritizes profits over people. It's an interesting little, there's this little commentary, a couple spots in Revelation where the world system of, hey, we can make a buck here, we can rip somebody off here, hey, we can create a system where we'll just, you know, get our money and just kind of, you know, wipe it off the top of the pile, whatever else. The Lord's watching. Nobody gets away with anything in, in the Lord's accounting. Okay? If you are hiding sin, the Lord knows it. If you are confessing your sin and forsaking it, He is removing it. It is gone. But if you are hiding it, He is completely aware. And you are not pulling the wool over His eyes. Verse 10. Incidentally also, I guess, if you're thinking about it, if a third of the living creatures in the sea died, do you realize that 70% of the Earth's oxygen comes from underwater plants in the ocean? So if a third of 70% of the world's oxygen supply dies, the Earth is getting really unpleasant to live in right now. Verse 10, Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. So a vast majority of the fresh water in the earth is going to get poisoned. Verse 12. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So, a third of the light in the world is blocked out. Now, how does that happen? I don't know. If you're, if you're looking at Scripture saying, it, we'll take it as literally as possible, I believe it means that about a third of the light will be blocked out. At this point, I mean, you're talking, if you have no wind and you have you know, massive warfare going on and all kinds of other problems... You could just have dust. And we saw it, you know, this last summer uh, on the East Coast. They had wildfires in Canada, and the smoke was basically shutting down the whole East Coast of the United States because it was so bad. What happens if there's no wind to blow it away? The, you could lose a third of your light. And so we're going to just, just all these things adding up. And an angel says, these are nothing compared to what's coming. 
Because up to this point, what has happened has been largely physical judgment. Okay, but what's going to shift here now is it's going to be, there's going to become a form of spiritual judgment. In chapter 9, really, there's, it's the fifth trumpet and the sixth trumpet. I will freely admit, they're both kind of weird to read. And like you kind of read them and you're like, I really don't know what that looks like. But if the scripture tends to be interpreted very literally, I say, I guess that's what it looks like. Can't really picture it in my mind, but that's okay. I'm just going to say the Lord knows more than I do. Ver- chapter 9, verse 1, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. So the star is some sort of demonic entity, and he was given a key to the bottomless pit, which is on the earth. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. And then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth. And to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. There's nothing happy. There's nothing positive and encouraging about this verse and this passage. Okay? A demonic army is let loose on the earth to torment men. But notice some things. There are some things that are really important to notice in this passage. Okay? Specifically, they are not allowed to torment those who have the seal of God upon their foreheads. Christians who get saved, you think about, if you will, if you can remember in the book of Exodus... When the Lord is bringing the nation of Israel out of the land of Egypt and out of their slavery. There's a period of time where there are judgments that the Israelites and the Egyptians are going through. And they're all really bad. But there's a period of time when the Lord starts to make a delineation. And he says, okay, this judgment is going to affect the Egyptians. It will not affect the Jewish people. And that's what starts to happen here. The Lord says, this judgment is going to affect people who are not sealed by Jesus Christ. So this is a specific torment for non-believers to wake them up to the reality of evil, to the reality of hell, to the reality of being forced to dwell in wickedness forever. Notice, so there's a, in essence a comfort here for those believers who will be on the earth and haven't been martyred yet for their faith, okay? But these unbelievers are going to be tormented for five months. With what feels like a scorpion sting. I've never been stung by a scorpion. I really hope I never get stung by a scorpion. But notice verse 6. It says, In those days men will desire death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. The Lord will remove the ability for the soul and body to separate. And you think about that for a second. Think about, and, and in essence think about it, but don't think too hard. Okay? What happens when your human beings are suddenly incapable of committing suicide. And it's not for lack of trying. It's for lack of ability. Imagine what humanity could turn into. Okay, but understand something else. And this is important because you, you read that verse and you try to envision it and you realize this is, a, this is an appalling period of human history. But understand something. When your soul and your body separate, you are judged. Okay, in that moment, to be absent from the body, Paul tells us, is to be present with the Lord for believers. But it's appointed for men once to die and after the judgment, says in Hebrews. 
So there will be a point in time at which someone will desire to die and not be capable of it. What does that mean? It means the Lord will not let them go into judgment yet. They will be dealing with judgment on earth, but the Lord is saying, I will not let you go to hell yet. And it will be brutal on earth. Okay, but understand this. The inability to die is the ability to repent. When we see the judgment of God, it is always connected to the grace of God. Okay? And so, yeah, this is a, this is a heavy passage. This is, this is awful. I do not want to see this. I don't want any of my friends to see this. This passage should drive us to share the gospel. But there's still the grace of God in that. Right? So verse 7. <clears throat> he goes on, he says, The shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lions' teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men for five months, and they had a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek his, as he has the name Apollyon. One woe is passed. Out of the last three trumpets, one is passed. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Verse 13, Then the sixth angel sounded. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now, the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their powers in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. There are angels, these are demonic angels, who are being held in check who the Lord is not letting loose right now. But they are real, and they are waiting, and it says they've been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year. These four angels will not get out a second too soon or a second too late. The Lord will judge the earth by allowing these angels to come onto the earth. But it will be in his time. Even in this, I mean, think about this. Satan, as he's watching all these things come together, is going to feel like he is finally starting to win. Right? I mean, think about, you know, when Jesus was in the grave for three days, what did Satan, what was he thinking? He was panicking a little bit because Jesus yelled, it is finished, right before he died. And Satan had to scramble and think, what does it is finished mean? Does it mean I won? Does it mean I lost? Like, what is, what's going on here? But for a period of the Great Tribulation, Satan is going to feel like I am getting what I've always wanted. I am getting to torment men. I am getting to wipe out Christianity. I'm getting free reign of the earth. And he's going to have a moment in here somewhere where he realizes, I'm not calling the shots. I thought I was timing the release of these four, and it wasn't me. And God's, God is still in control. And these four angels then head up an army of 200 million demons to torment men and to take out a third of mankind. At this point, a fourth of mankind has already been destroyed. You destroy a third of the remainder, 50% 
of the earth's population has been killed at this point in the Great Tribulation. Okay? 50%. That's a lot of people. Verse 20. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. And they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. The word sorceries there, just interestingly enough, is the word pharmakia, where you get our word pharmacy. It's the idea of taking something that gives you an altered state of consciousness. So in essence, this could translate as basically the men of the earth did not repent of their murders or their drugs or their sex or their thefts. All these things will go on. Never underestimate the grace of God to hand out opportunity after opportunity. Never underestimate the hardness of the human heart. The sinfulness of the human heart. Now, here's the thing. There are some people who will never repent by their own choice. They just will not allow the Lord a hold in their lives. There are other people who look like they will not allow the Lord to hold in their lives. And we are not given the ability to discern between the two. We are told to take the gospel into all the earth. We are told to share the gospel, to make disciples. And so we don't need to assess how capable someone is of receiving the gospel. We don't need to assess, you know, well, it, was, it wasn't an open door. No, there's, there's, yes, there's a time to be discerning and to walk in the you know, submission to the Holy Spirit. Lord, is there, you know, do I kind of put a stone in somebody's shoe and just try and get them to walk away with a little bit of truth bugging them? Or do I share the whole gospel at once? And, and yes, there's, some, there's, there's a need in those situations to be walking with the Holy Spirit and do what he says. But we're called to take the gospel. We are not called to have a cute Christian club where we can do our thing and talk about, boy, the world sure doesn't know what's coming. Or, boy, the world is full of just mean people. Or, boy, there's a lot of bad guys out there. That's not our job. Our job is to preach the gospel. Our job is to say, you know what? Hell on earth is coming. And we read this and we realize this is not as bad as hell itself. And the Lord, I believe, would use it to burden us and to stir us up and to say, what are you, what are you doing? Do you believe that hell is real? And does that drive your behavior? Do you believe that Jesus is real? Do you believe that any person has the opportunity to spend eternity with Jesus? And does that drive your behavior? And so as we go through, the book of Revelation is, is a challenging book to read in a very good sort of way because it pushes us. What do you actually believe? Do you believe the Word of God? Are you acting on the Word of God? Is it driving you? Is it changing you? And, and understand, and so yes, there, there's a heavy side, but there's also, there's always just the balance. And so the goal is not to create some sort of Christian guilt trip. The goal is to just cause us all to look and say, wow, God is incredibly gracious. He's incredibly patient. Peter says, the patience of God is salvation. Every second God waits, there's an opportunity for other people to come and know him. But God is also very just. And we do not know the day or the hour that Jesus comes back. We have a limited time opportunity. We do not know how limited. And so we are called to live like it is very, very short. 
We're called to take it very, very seriously. Are we doing that? And in the meantime, are we looking for heaven? Remember, remember, this book is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of things in Revelation, but above them all, it's this. Jesus Christ is real, and he wants us to be with him, and he wants every person to be with him. Are we living like that's the truth? So Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would challenge us, that we would grow in it, grow through it, that you would speak to us, Lord, and that we would truly be people of whom it could be said that we took the gospel into all the earth. God, we don't know when you're coming back, but you told us in the end of Revelation, we'll be there in a couple weeks, you told us to pray that you would come soon. And Lord, we do pray that you would hurry back. As awful as, as it seems to read about your justice, we recognize that it is just, that the earth deserves a consequence for the sins that we have allowed. And so we recognize that you will deal perfectly in justice, that no one will slip through the cracks. God, we rejoice that we can trust that no evil will be left unpunished. That we can, we can know that no abuse, no crime, no sin, no darkness is going to be left undealt with. You are going to come and bring truth and justice and life and light and victory and joy and peace, and we can't wait. And so we pray that you would come quickly. But while we wait, we pray that you would send us out, that you would fill us up with your Holy Spirit, with the power of your word, and that we would go out as lights in a dark world where it's crazy, as people who understand, like Paul said, the grace and the peace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.